Can we all give Caitlin a round of applause for joining us today? Um, I, I've been trying to say, like, it is a legitimate choice for you to be worshiping with us online. It is completely fine for people not to be here every single week. Things come up, right? You are missing the energy in this room <laughs> if you are not with us. Oh, my goodness. Um, this was a good day to bring the extra energy. Um, I, I really, really appreciate that last song, too, uh, that we sing every week before the kids go out. Jesus loves little children. Anybody else grow up singing that song or hearing that, hearing that song being sung to them? Um, what I love most about, I love being able to sing our kids out, but what I love most about it is what, um, what Katie's done with it. Because um, if you grew up on that song, you did not hear the lyrics that we sing every week, right? So this song is over 100 years old, and um, I truly believe that at the time it was written, nothing malicious was meant by it, right? However, we stand here 100 years later in the year 2022, and there is this one line, which I will not repeat, that at, at least is um, a little cringe, <laughs> and at worst is super racist, <laughs> So what we've done is we said, well, we could completely ignore it. We could completely throw it out. We could just accept it as it is. Or we could say, you know what? This has value, and we can do something to make it a little bit better to fit with us, to fit with the world that we now live in. I say we have done that. Katie did that, right? I, I'm not going to take any credit for that at all. Um, a few minutes ago, we heard from Bethany. I've never met Bethany in person, but she like, she's in Katie and Jacob's Grove group. Um, she considers the, the Grove her worshiping community right now, even while she lives that far away. And she shared her story of uh, growing up in church and hearing these things that were said, some of them explicitly out of the Bible. And what they did was they, if they did not perpetuate ab abuse, they allowed at least for that abuse to continue. And she got to this point in her life where like, ag again, she could have said, I just need to accept it as it is. I need to completely throw it out. Or I need to figure out how to interpret this differently and see myself differently. And what she did was she had to hear God's voice differently. And she had to, uh, and she had to find her own voice as well. And because she was willing to do that, because she was willing to, to re-engage and reinterpret, she's now on this, this path that she was not on previously. Um, I've talked before about the Grove. Um, we have what we, we call as a reparative approach to the Bible. And what that means is, um, well, for 2,000 years, Christians have suggested that, um, that the, the Bible is alive and active. The Word of God is alive and active. What usually follows that, then, is the suggestion that, yeah, it's alive and active, but it actually only means one thing, and it was the thing that the original author writing it 2,000 years ago meant. So it's alive and active, but only in this very specific way. A reparative reading of the Bible says that, you know what, it, it may have meant that originally, but uh, we want to take seriously the idea that the Word of God is alive and active. It is maybe even inspired in some way, that it's living and changing in some way, and it's meeting us in our moment of need where we're at, and it might not be written for us. It was not originally written for us. News, news flash. Uh, something written 2,000 years ago was not written for us, 
but it can still speak to us now in the moment of need where we need it, even if it didn't originally say this. So today we are going to revisit one of these 2,000-year-old stories that historically has been uh, a tricky one at best. Um, at worst, it has been abusive. And what we're going to do is we're going to say, you know what? We're going to read this story. We're going to try to best understand it within its context and also say that there's something that we can take away from this. might not be what it originally meant or how it's originally been interpreted, but it can give us life and healing where we're at now. So before we jump into that, I want to set a little bit of context again for, um, for where we're at in this whole series. Um, you can go back. Robin, to the, you hear a blank slide? Yeah. Um, we're in the middle of this series called Come and See. As we started this year, as we started this church, we said we want to be reading through the gospel according to John, which is one of the four biographies about Jesus that we find in our Bible. John is the fourth of those. It is the, uh, it is the latest that was written. It's also different because while the other two were a little bit more focused on facts about Jesus, John wanted to say, what is the experience of Jesus like, and how does that then impact what we believe and what we do as people who say that we want to follow Jesus? So uh, the experience of Jesus, as we've seen it in these stories over the last few weeks, I the experience of Jesus is like tasting the best wine when it seems like all of the wine has run out. And the experience of Jesus is like that anger that we feel when the world is not working as it should be, when there is injustice that we see happening and then last week we talked about the experience of god being like that feeling of redemption that can come when we are honest about uh making up for our past working off our past being born from above as uh as jesus would say and now this week we are looking at a story that contrasts the one that we talked about last week last week was about this religious leader uh, this man who was supposed to have it all figured out, and yet he shows up and, and wants to talk to Jesus in the middle of the night. And today we read about a woman who is not supposed to have it all figured out, who shows up in the middle of the day when anybody can see. So let's jump into the story. This is from John 4, and I'm going to split it up. It's a longer story, and I want to be able to split it up so it's not as long, but also to be able to touch on a couple things. So first off, we've got John 4, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus came to a, a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Joseph, uh, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, since he was tired from the journey, sat right down beside the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink, for his disciples had gone off into the town to buy supplies. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? For Jews are uh, use nothing in common with Samaritans. Okay, so a little bit of context, both cultural and geographic context. Uh, we're told that Jesus is on his way from Galilee, which is a region in Israel, and he's on his way back home to Judea, and he has to pass through this other region called Samaria. If you think about this in terms of states, this is like if you were visiting Chicago, so you're in Illinois, and you want to get back home to Minnesota, 
you probably have to go through Wisconsin. Okay? You can see Judea, Samaria, Galilee. You probably have to go through Wisconsin. In order to get to Galilee, Jesus either has to go through Samaria or take the long way around. If you're coming back to Minnesota, you could say, I don't really want to drive through, through Wisconsin. I'm going to go through Iowa. That's possible. Uh, but you're probably going to go through Wisconsin. And you might be fine with that, or you might be like, those dreaded cheeseheads. I want nothing to do with them and their culture. And so, or some of you might be like, that's not a big deal at all. Uh, same is true here. We read this story 2,000 years later, and we're like, oh, well, he's on a trip. Of course, he's going to go. If he's going back home, he's going to go through Samaria. The problem is that Jews and Samarians didn't really get along that well. Uh, Samar Samaria uh, is, even though it's a region of, of Israel, it was kind of like a separate region. Uh, they, were, they were unique in a lot of different ways. Uh, there's a lot of history that goes into it that I'm not going to fully go into, but um, after some cultural upheaval and um, some national trauma and physical displacement from their land, the Samaritans ended up having a different religion, a different culture, a different identity even. Uh, they decided that they were going to set up their own, uh, they were going to set up their own capital and their own temple even, that was separate from Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem because theirs was the true temple, not that counterfeit that was down in Jerusalem. You can imagine the Jewish people didn't like that very much. Theirs was the real temple. Theirs was the real capital, right? Uh, so Jews and Samaritans from their earliest age were taught that they are supposed to hate one another. So there's these stories that get told, whether they are fabrications two years or 20 uh, 2,000 years later or not, there's these stories like little kids, little Jewish kids were taught uh, in their prayers to pray that Samaritans wouldn't go into heaven. Um, th there's also this story that suggests that if a Jew was in the shadow of a Samaritan person, they would be deemed unclean and need to like go through a ritual cleaning. Samaritans, on the other hand, also did things like, again, this is a story, whether it ever happened or not, it got told and handed down that um, some Samaritans uh, snuck into the temple in Jerusalem and scattered bones everywhere in the middle of the night. Not great stuff, right? <laughs> so Samaritans and Jews don't like each other. They don't get along. And they definitely aren't wanting to be seen talking to one another in the middle of the day like Jesus and this Samaritan were. There's also this gender dynamic that's going on here. Uh, in the ancient world, it was not a good idea. It was um, seen as highly inappropriate for a woman in public to be talking to someone, to be around even another man who was not her husband. Not to mention being alone and talking and asking questions. So Jesus, this Jew, is sitting with this Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. We're told it's noon right in the bright sunlight for anyone to see it's just the two of them we're like oh there's something that's going on here that we need to pay attention to so that is the context of the conversation and now for the content of the conversation so she says we're not supposed to mix anything like we're not even supposed to use the same things to draw water jesus answered if you had known the gift of god and who it is who said to you give me some water to drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water 
sir, the woman said to him, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he gave us this well and drank from it himself, along with his sons and livestock. Jesus replied, everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to uh, come here to draw water. He said to her, go call your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, right you are when you said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the man you are living with now is not your husband. This you said truthfully. All right, so Jesus and the Samaritan woman, they're at a well. They start talking about water because they're at a well. It's a natural conversation, right? All of a sudden, Jesus does his weird Jesus thing and he starts talking about living water and water that's never going to run out and uh, water that you, if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again uh, and water that if you have it, it will uh, bring forth everlasting life in you and it sounds kind of like Willy Wonka. <laughs> everlasting gobstopper you have this and you'll never need anything else again so her response is well who wouldn't want that kind of water i want that kind of water how do i get access to that kind of water so that i will never be thirsty again any of us would probably have that same response and jesus says well why don't you go and get your husband they're the ones supposed to be having the conversation not the wife and uh and this random guy that she met right go get your husband and the woman says, I don't have a husband. And this, my friends, is where the reparative reading of the Bible comes into play. Uh, this story is 2,000 years old, right? It could have lots of different ways that it has been interpreted over the years. But the, the primary way uh, that it is interpreted uh, in, in these days, in, in many different traditions, is this. That Jesus is trying to shame this woman. And he is setting up the conversation in order to get to a gotcha moment. She said she doesn't have a husband. Ah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And now you're with a woman, or now you're with a man who is not your husband. Gotcha. The idea, of course, is that um, this woman is doing something so salacious. She's had five husbands. She's now with someone who's not her husband. She has all of this personal guilt that she needs to feel for, for doing these unbelievably salacious things, right? This, this is the implication of, of this reading of the text. Here's my response to that. Uh, if, if this is, if, if we talk about like the interpretations of, of a text being like COVID, this is the variant that's like Omicron that took off really fast and is like the dominant narrative. I'm going to give you permission to alongside COVID to boo this reading. <laughs> this is the one that I grew up with. And if you've heard the story before, you have very likely, likely heard this type of reading. Not only, however, does this, it, it kind of makes me upset that I was taught this growing up, but if the people who taught me this were taught this, 
um, it only makes sense, but it doesn't make sense when you read the story. Not only does it, does it not actually connect with the point, it is the exact opposite of the point. The exact opposite of the point. You see, in the ancient world, first century Israel, a woman had no autonomy. She couldn't make the most important decisions for herself. She was basically a, a possession. She, wasn't in, uh, she didn't get to choose who she married. I, if she was in a marriage and it was abusive, she didn't have the choice to divorce. A man, on the other hand, could d divorce a woman on a whim. And then if her husband died, she didn't get to go out and choose somebody else who she was going to marry or choose not to marry someone else. She gets handed down through the family like an inheritance. So we hear this story that she has, she's had five husbands, and the, the man she's with now is not her husband. Uh, the man who's not her husband is probably her brother-in-law that she got handed off to. This is not a sign of, like, personal guilt for doing something salacious. This story of having five husbands and now being with someone who's not her husband, this is a trauma. This is someone who's undergone trauma. And, and so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's not saying, like, you ought to feel this shame for these things that you've done. He's saying, I see that trauma that you've gone through. I, what, a, what a powerful thing to think that it, the experience of God is that God sees our trauma. The, he never asks, the, here's the other thing with the story. We're, we're trained to think that uh, she needs to ask for repentance. Jesus never asks her to repent, to feel sorry for what she's done. He never asks her that in this story. She never offers repentance. She never feels sorry for what she's done because she has nothing to feel sorry for what she's done. And in fact, she gets held up as the example of what you ought to be like. The story from last week, we have this Pharisee, this man who's supposed to know it all, who has it all put together. He shows up during the night because he's too afraid to face the things that he or we have done. And Jesus tells him, you need to be born from above before you can get on this plan. This woman, however, she comes out in the middle of the day with all of these reasons why she should have no interaction with him. And she's the one who's seen. And she's the one who sees. The Samaritan woman at the well is the first person in John's biography about Jesus who sees him for who he is and then goes and tells other people about him. She goes and tells these other Samaritan people who are not supposed to have any interactions with the Jew about who Jesus is, and they come and they start believing, and Jesus' disciples get back, if you keep reading the story, and they're like, what happened while we were gone? <laughs> this is messed up. This is, this is what I love the most about like this reparative reading of, of the Bible. It completely changes the implications of these stories. The implication of this story is no longer that this woman felt uh, shame for what she had done. We should feel shame for what we have done. One of the implications is that God sees us. God sees us where we're at, as we are, and who we truly are. A couple weeks ago, I was driving my kids to preschool, and I saw a church sign that's often changed out, and this is what the church sign said. God saw you do that. 
This is not the exact sign, but this is what it said. God saw you do that. This is not what I'm talking about when I say God sees you. This is like, hey, uh, you ought to be ashamed of what you've done. God's watching you. Uh, the implication of this story is God sees you. God sees you in your trauma. God sees you in, uh, in your pain. God sees you in your loneliness. God sees you in your uncertainty. God sees you in your, your questions and your doubts. And God sees you for who you really are, a beloved child of God, not any of those other things. And then, of course, the other implication is that we, as those who say that we want to be followers of Jesus— ought to be in the business of seeing as well. We need to be in the business of being able to see, oh, this isn't a personal choice, this is a trauma. We ought to be people who see and say, we're going to grow goodness as a result. We want to be people who see and say, we want to expand our circle of inclusion, especially for those who have been hurt by the church, who've who've, uh, had this trauma in their lives, who never felt welcome in the first place, or were told that they weren't welcome. We want to be people who see and say, we want to be people of healing, wholeness, and beauty. That's a reparative reading. That's reparative for me as well. So my hope is that as we go, that we might be people who acknowledge that God sees us. God sees us in our situations. God sees us with all that we have on our shoulders. God sees us for who we truly are. And that we will also be people who see and grow goodness as a result. Let's see.